Hello there, welcome back to MLEX's podcast with the week's most pressing news from the world of regulatory affairs. My name is James Paniki and it's great to have your company again. In just a few minutes' time, we'll be crossing to Sydney for the very latest dramatic developments in the Australian government's feud with Facebook. And after that, we'll touch base with the UK to talk about the status of competition class actions in the country. We'll be chatting with Simon Zakaria in the second half of today's podcast. First up, though, Facebook users in Australia will no longer have access to news in their news feed. The US-based company has decided that, with Australia's new mandatory code of conduct for platforms just days away, providing local users with news just wasn't worth the hassle and certainly not the cash that Facebook would have been required to hand over to the publishers. But Facebook's dramatic exit from news turned into a bit of a train wreck this week. Laurel Henning is a senior MNEX reporter based in Sydney and for the past couple of years covering digital regulation has been her bread and butter and she joins us now. Okay, Laurel, first up, uh, remind us why Facebook has done what it has done. Well, while Facebook says it's invested and is investing in journalism around the world, it does not want to be forced, James, into commercial negotiations by the Australian government with Australian news publishers. And that is clearly what it's going to be forced to do with uh, with this uh, under this code of conduct, which we should remind listeners has not actually gone through the Australian Parliament yet. But you point out in your analysis that Facebook's purging of news was something of a debacle, wasn't it, because of all of the non-news pages that got caught up uh, in in the crossfire? That's right. So despite Facebook saying um, it would be withdrawing news content, it would be restricting publishers and people in Australia from sharing or viewing Australian and international news, that wasn't just the content that disappeared on Thursday morning, James. It was actually um, what was included in that swathe of content was um, a Save Koala- Save the Koalas campaign by the environmental group WWF. <laughs> there was a North Shore Sydney Mums group that got that got caught up in everything. And uh, also the Bureau of Meteorology. And let's not forget some um, government pages as well linked to um, government health organisations, which obviously is it's pretty critical at this time. Well, particularly because Australia is about to um, start its uh, vaccination program for COVID-19. So um, all of this really points to the fact that Facebook was not particularly capable when it came to moderating its content, which was itself a reminder of some of the problems that the government has uh, alerted the public to. And we should also say that if Facebook had been hoping that the government would buckle, It would have been very disappointed because by the sounds of things and from what you've written about this, it sounds like the government is still determined to stay the course. Yes. So both um, the Prime Minister and the Australian Treasurer, who is really overseeing this legislation, have both been very firm in sticking to the fact that this this legislation, this draft legislation, will be becoming law. And we've really just had these two um, points of view at loggerheads for months now. I mean, it was sort of towards the middle end of last year when Facebook first said, if this goes ahead, um, Australian news publishers need Facebook more than we need news, and we will pull this content from our platform. And I think since then, the two um, sides, if you will, have just been in this staring match. And while Google has been the more um, vocal of the two digital platforms by far, it's Facebook in the end that stuck by what it was saying, albeit a little prematurely because this legislation, as we've said, hasn't become law yet. 
Okay, so Facebook has decided to go in this particular direction. That puts it at odds with Google, which has in fact gone down a very different path. So tell me something about the deals that Google has signed with uh, Australian and international news publishers. So I'd say when um, Google and Facebook really diverged was probably in the, the very early weeks of February following a pretty um, fiery Senate debate, Senate hearing where um, executives of both Google and Facebook appeared before um, Senate committee members. And they said to Australian policymakers that they both had news products. So Facebook News, Google News Showcase that were in the works that um, had signed deals elsewhere in the world. And they were both on hold in Australia so long as this policy discussion was ongoing. Now, Facebook sort of stuck with that discussion. But Google, within about a week of saying that, um, introduced its news showcase product to Australia. And just this week, we've seen three major deals be uh, announced, or at least the intent of an agreement be announced. We've got, um, obviously, the global deal with News Corp, a three-year deal. We've got the nine entertainment deal for more than $30 million a year over a five-year period. Nine Entertainment is a very significant publishing company here. Nine and News Corp are the major proponents of this code. They're the most vocal. As vocal as Facebook and Google are against it, they are for it. And then we've also had a deal with Seven Seven West Media, which is another major publishing company here. Hmm. An interesting part of your analysis uh, on this is that the effect of these deals with Google, the purpose of these deals from Google's perspective was really to safeguard Google search. So that is Google's search engine, which we all know and love to differing degrees, I suppose. (laughs) Explain that logic to me. Well, yes, I think if you think about Google, we all think first and foremost of Google search before we think of anything else, before we think of Gmail or any other product. We, we, you know, it's part of our daily conversation. Oh, I'll Google it. The arguments from Google executives is you and I enjoy that privilege for free. Now, what free means becomes a topic of debate among experts when we get into discussions about data, the value of data, etc. But The argument Google makes is if you introduce the media code and you introduce Google search as part of that media code, what you end up with is news companies being paid for Google search links and news companies who appear in Google search alongside or as well as your local cafe or supermarket or whatever it might be, these companies are getting preferential treatment, essentially. And and that's the main issue here, as well as the fact that obviously Google search is where that company makes most of its money. So in other words, Google was quite happy to hand over a bucket of cash to the uh, to the to the publishers, but it didn't want to contaminate. It didn't want to build a, a business model around Google Search, which it wants to remain totally unsullied by commercial considerations of anyone other than itself, obviously. That's correct. Yes. Have our news showcase product, have the product on the terms that we dictate. Don't touch that. Yeah. Now, you point out that while the media code has attracted international headlines uh, this week, uh, you know, the fact that Facebook decided to pull out, pull its news uh, from Australia was was globally significant. But in fact, Facebook has been facing mounting enforcement and regulatory pressure in Australia for some time. So on that front, there's nothing uh, new. But just remind us of, give us a quick state of play of the other challenges that Google is facing in the country at the moment. 
none of which, of course, have caused the company to ever threaten to withdraw from Australia, but are significant nonetheless. That is true. Yes. So um, aside from the media code, which we've obviously been talking about extensively, um, Facebook is facing two lawsuits in Australia. One is a consumer lawsuit relating to its handling of personal information through its Onavo Protect application. Another lawsuit is a privacy related lawsuit from the fallout of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which is under to have affected around uh, 300,000 Australians. And then we've got two pieces of legislation, one of which was actually being mentioned today by Prime Minister Scott Morrison as his other sort of um, big achievement when it comes to legislating digital platforms and big achievement when it comes to stepping out in front of other regulators. Um, And that was put in place after the um, tragic events of the terrorist attack in New Zealand in 2019, an attack that was live streamed to Facebook. And and we should point out that that piece of legislation also included uh, jail terms. So Facebook, local Facebook employees uh, could be jailed for up to three years if they didn't demonstrate that they'd tried to remove something expeditiously from from their their site, that is uh, that is uh, going to attract the attention of of anyone in Silicon Valley, right? Especially when who who knows what expeditiously remove or expeditious removal actually means, and that's been the main problem with that piece of legislation since it was introduced. The final issue that um, I think Facebook has faced alongside the media code, notwithstanding the media code, is Australia's encryption law, also known as the Assistance and Access Act, under which um, Australian law enforcement agencies have the right to request access to encrypted data through services like WhatsApp or Viber. And that is obviously an issue for Facebook as the owner of WhatsApp. Okay, so let's let's just recap. We've got Facebook that might sidestep the code of conduct because it's no longer going to be publishing news. Uh, we've got Google who is signing deals, so reaching agreements with the different publishing companies. So it is itself not going to have to go through this mandatory uh, this mandatory system. So we're facing the prospect of the legislation remaining in place, but it's sort of unclear who that legislation would actually apply to, right? Unclear is the key point at this stage, I think, James. Um, And the main criticism of the uh, main opposition party in Australia when um, parliamentarians were giving their backing to this piece of legislation just earlier this week um, in, in the lower house, the House of Representatives in Australia's parliament. So, yes... While the law can enter into force, um, obviously it wouldn't apply to Facebook newsfeed if there's no news content for it to apply to. And Google search, well, it remains unclear. Australian Treasurer Josh Frydenberg said earlier this week that the commercial deals that Google has struck um, just in the last few weeks, especially this week, really and I quote, change the equation when it comes to how he, and it is down to him specifically, uh, decides, or the Australian treasurer of the day, decides which digital platforms are covered by this legislation. The legislation itself actually just says digital platform service providers. It's then up to the treasurer to decide who gets included. And at at, at this point, we just don't know. Okay, so just to be super clear, there is a piece of legislation that is is generic, uh, but then the treasurer has a list and he, in this case he, uh, decides 
who and what companies or even what services will be on that list. And he doesn't need the consent of parliament to do that. That's just an executive thing that he can do. He can add names, he can remove them. So we are facing the prospect of no one being on that list, right? I mean, in theory, yes. I don't think that's quite where we're headed. But for example, whereas he had said in December of last year, it will be Facebook newsfeed, it will be Google search. We just now aren't clear on exactly what it will be maybe it will be just google news showcase but now i feel like even the door is open perhaps for platforms that had been discussed at an earlier stage of the legislation's drafting and then removed i'm thinking of platforms like instagram well that could open up a whole other bag of worms with uh, with facebook and also youtube to be reconsidered perhaps it, we just we just really don't know at this point If Google search were removed from the treasurer's list, it's fine, obviously, for those publishing companies, the large publishing companies that you name checked before, uh, you know, Nine Entertainment, Seven West, uh, News Corp, they're all fine because they've signed a deal. But what about the smaller regional uh, publishers? Where would that leave them? Well, um, there were some assertions earlier this week when the the draft law was being debated in Parliament that actually there are some regional publishers that don't really know anything about this code yet. So while, you know, your News Corp and Nine Entertainment have signed their multi-million dollar multi-year deals, some small newspaper in regional or rural New South Wales or Victoria has has no idea what they might have um, what they might have access to, and if this changes uh, before they can get a, a deal with Google News Showcase, or if they are left only with Google News Showcase, this could really change their potential for negotiation. I think under the bargaining code, it could really um, shift. Uh, what they have access to, it it will just look very different to how it was meant to look originally. And if you're only left with a product that to negotiate within that a digital platform has always been pushing for, then that, that negotiation looks very different. Where do we go from here? What are the next steps in the process? Well, we need to actually wait for this to become law and so that we can get more clarity on which platforms will actually be covered by these measures. Um, They're still in a draft stage. Yes, they have been passed by the lower house of parliament, but the Senate still needs to give its backing to the law before it can enter into force. And that could happen as soon as next week. Then we need to see which platforms the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, is going to designate uh, under that list of who should be covered under this media code. So I think lots more phone calls ahead uh, for him to uh, Silicon Valley. Laurel, it's been a dramatic week in Australia. Thank you for keeping our readers up to date with the developments. I'll speak to you soon. Thanks, James. Laurel Henning, MLEX's senior reporter covering regulatory matters from Sydney, and her analysis of these developments is certainly worth reading. And you can find it all at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just head for the Insight Centre tab. And for our subscribers wanting to piece these developments together, you can go to our media code case file or portfolio. You can also read all of Laurel's coverage of the Onavo lawsuit and the Australian Privacy Watchdog's case against Facebook on the Cambridge Analytica data breach. Up next, class action in the UK. No, it's not an upstairs-downstairs situation with class divisions, but the right of aggrieved consumers harmed by cartels to band together and sue. James Panicki with you. This is MLEX's weekly podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. 
An interesting legal clash is unfolding in Britain. Consumer champions are competing to sue some of the world's biggest investment banks over currency market rigging, and they're now waiting for a decision in the UK Competition Court, which is entering into uncharted territory in the country's developing collective claims regime. It's a complex legal issue, and who better to walk us through it than Simon Zakaria, an MLEX senior correspondent in London. Uh, Okay, Simon, first up, what is the status at the moment of the UK's collective action regime for competition law infringement cases? Hi, James. Hi. Uh, Yes, that's a very interesting question. The the UK has a very young mass claim legal regime. So um, what happened was they changed consumer laws in 2015. So that's some six years ago now to allow for class actions over competition law infringements. But to date, only two cases have been asked to be approved uh, by competition judges for trial, and that's known as certification. Uh, And both of these cases have been turned down by those judges. So the whole regime has been a very slow burn, in a sense. And it's quite interesting because for those two specific cases, you couldn't get more different ones. There was a very quirky case for damages over the price of mobility scooters, uh, which was, you know, a fairly small claim. Uh, But the other one is completely different. It's an absolute monster of a case. It was brought by Walter Merricks, uh, a British consumer champion, against MasterCard over their card fees. Uh, You know, these these cases always have some sort of uh, class representative, you know, like a figurehead who, who brings these claims. So that particular case is valued at £14 billion, pounds, which, uh, which, if it actually went ahead, would be the largest uh, damages claim ever in UK legal history. So it really is a landmark moment, and uh, he's also seeking that sum or, the, or that kind of payout for a class of 46 million consumers. So it's a, it's a really big deal. Well, let's talk about that. What is the importance of the Merrick's MasterCard case? How significant in the scheme of things is it? Yeah, absolutely. It is a very important case because it's kind of like the poster child of the whole collective action regime. Basically, the view is is if that particular case can proceed to a full court trial, you know, notwithstanding, you know, any success that he has at the end of it, then the floodgates would really open for, for all these other mass claims that are that are you know starting to be kicked off for the UK uh, in the UK to be brought against companies for for these kind of big payouts so it is a very important case it's kind of a litmus test really and uh, it's really um accelerated in importance really uh, very recently because at the end of last year the supreme court which is the UK's highest court it gave a boost to uh, Merricks against his for his case against mastercard because previously, when his, uh, when his uh, case was turned down by the competition judges, they said there wasn't really enough evidence that he had to prove loss for such a big class of consumers. And he also didn't really show how to distribute a payout to each individual class member, because these kind of damages actions are awarded on an aggregate basis. So it really was a question of granularity of data and, and of evidence that was the problem. But the Supreme Court came to a completely different conclusion. They said, no, no, uh, the competition judges got it all wrong. And that really, in order to get a claim approved for trial, as I said, this is called certification, you actually don't need to have all that data up front. So 
in fact, you only need to have a very basic framework of a case to, 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 to move forward. And all of this kind of evidential data can come out in the wash later. So that was a very important ruling to kind of boost uh, the regime as a whole. Mm. Well, given the nature of that ruling, what is its likely impact on other uh, planned mass lawsuits in the UK? Exactly. So, you know, as I, as I just mentioned, it's, um, it's not only about Merrick's MasterCard, but that Supreme Court ruling has, uh, is obviously a, a big boost for all these other planned claims. There's a queue of them that are waiting to be uh, essentially heard for certification by competition judges. And so all those host of other claimants will now be encouraged that they too will be able to meet the test to be certified. So really, there are two kind of pots for these uh, for these for these claims. So you have uh, ones that follow the, an infringement decision of a regulator. So, for example, the Merrick's case followed an EU infringement decision against Mastercard over interchange fees, a very important uh, competition law ruling in two thousand and seven. So you've got that kind of claim, and also claims against already established cartels. So we've uh, got claims coming through the system for other sectors like banks or car shipping companies. And again, they follow the decision of a regulator and then the claimant seeks damages after that. But also you've got other kind of claims. They're called standalone claims. And these are ones which don't follow the decision of a regulator, but basically uh, are just generated off their own back. And there are also cases like that in the UK. So, for example, there's one over uh, train ticketing. So uh, uh, Justin Goodman says that uh, British consumers have paid too much for their train tickets in recent years and should be compensated. So there are all these kind of different claims. And the, 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 the regime has got another jolt just very recently because there's been a class action filed against BT, the telecom giant. And that particular claim alleges that people have paid too much for their landlines over many years and therefore should be should receive damages for historic overcharging. And that's worth £600 million. So you can see that the Merrick's MasterCard case uh, is very important because you have all these other claims uh, queuing up behind it. And if there is a, an idea that, that they can be boosted for certification, that is obviously going to have a big impact. Uh, Simon, you mentioned in passing uh, banks. Of course, there is the foreign exchange uh, cartel involving Barclays, uh, JP Morgan, UBS, Citigroup, and and others. Uh, that is uh, weaving its way around the world, really, in different jurisdictions. Is there likely to be a significant impact from these decisions on that particular class action? It's an interesting question because that's uh, yeah I, I sort of referenced that that claim against the banks. That's a very important uh, case. Uh, uh, you have you know private actions against the banks for uh, 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 currency manipulation, but also you've got these mass lawsuits. And it's an interesting point because in that particular case, you've got competing class actions. So um, it's thrown a bit of a spanner in the works because the, you know, the, as I mentioned, the Supreme Court ruling was brilliant for Merricks and other claimants because it basically set, set them a clear bar to meet for their claims to get approved. But there are other outstanding questions to, to answer. And one of them is about these kind of rival class actions, basically for the same grievance. So in that particular case, uh, against the banks, only one of the claims, you know, there are two of them, one brought uh, by they're brought by two different consumer champions. 
only one of the claims is likely to proceed and one will be knocked out. Why is that? Why could there not be just competing claims all in front of the same court? Uh, I, mean, it's, it, I mean, it's simply because uh, both of the claims are of the same character. They're, they're opt-out claims, so they've automatically included you know, pension funds and other investment companies that they're, they're representing. They're automatically included in the class. And essentially, it's the same kind of case against the banks. So you wouldn't have two of exactly the same uh, actions against the banks going through at the same time. So, you know, the court might turn both of them down and say they're both not like, can't be certified, but that's pretty unlikely because of the Merrick's MasterCard decision. But so, uh, in a sense, you've got a, a competition and one will be, get knocked out early. And the difficulty is, is that the, uh, the competition judges have got real, no real guidance from the Supreme Court on how to deal with this particular issue. It's known as a carriage dispute. And it's something that they'll have to look at and resolve very quickly because this is going to be coming up this year. And in fact, there are other claims in the UK that also have the same problem in the sense that they're competing against each other for certification and therefore a trial, a damages trial. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, what the judges say about that. Given all of this background, where do we go from here? What happens next? So what happens next, really, the next big thing on the agenda is Merrick's second bid to get his lawsuit approved against MasterCard. Obviously, as I mentioned before, the first time around he was turned down uh, by the Competition Appeal Tribunal and he's going back for another go. And that's basically because the Supreme Court uh, said that 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 has to happen. He has to have another shot at it. And that's coming up at the end of March. So it's pretty soon, really, next month. And, you know, it's largely seen as inevitable that this time around he will uh, get his he will get the nod and that he'll get the green light for for certification and that the trial will go ahead. But it will be interesting to see how the competition judges govern this approval, um, because what they say about it will give even more signals to other cases as to how their cases will be handled, because, of course, all of these cases will be handled by the, the competition appeal tribunal. They're kind of the gatekeeper for this regime. So uh, after that, it will really be the uh, the competition court that will take centre stage. Uh, at the end of the day, any of these kind of massive payouts from these class actions will still be years away because, you know, they still have to get to trial, they still have to be argued in court and etc. But basically, the regime is really set to rocket forward right now and that's, and that's really catching the attention here in the UK. Simon, thank you so much for talking to me uh, today. It's been great. Thanks very much, James. Simon Zakaria, MNEC's senior correspondent based in London, and we'll post a link to Simon's analysis of this issue at the usual website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, dot com. And that's it for this week's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. My name is James Paniki, MLEX's Asia-Pacific senior editor. I'll catch you again very soon. Bye for now. <music>